Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to this week's edition of the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. Thank you so much for joining us at the top of the second hour. Uh, in this segment, we're going to be joined by a very special guest. Uh, we mentioned it in the first opening of the show, uh, but he's an investigative journalist. Uh, he's also a resident uh, correspondent at the United Nations headquarters in New York City. His name is Matthew Russell Lee. And if you don't know Matthew Lee's story, there's a story we've posted up on 21st Century Wire uh, at midnight, uh, beginning of today, which really outlines Matt's story. And I encourage people to go read that um, during or after the show. But essentially, this is uh, quite a significant story that maybe you haven't heard. And the reason is, is because we talk about the free press. We talk about the independent media a lot on this show. Obviously, this is uh, what we are, uh, non-affiliated uh, independent media. Matthew Lee was probably, if I'm not mistaken, I'll introduce him in a second, but one of the first, if not the first, non-affiliated uh, independent media person, or at the time, uh, what they would call a blogger, uh, who was granted access uh, to the United Nations uh, in a resident capacity as in the press corps there uh, on site in New York City. And, and since then, Matthew has broken quite a few uh, really key important stories internationally, and many of them, uh, much to the chagrin of the United Nations, had to do with UN institutional corruption uh, and also scandals that are happening all around the world involving uh, NGO-related uh, sort of scandals and corruption and cover-ups. And uh, it all came to a head in February, and they physically threw Matthew Lee out of the building. And uh, since then, he's been fighting to get reinstatement, to reinstate his previous status as a resident correspondent. He's going to be joining us for this segment on the Sunday Wire. Matthew, how are you? I'm glad. I'm glad. Thanks a lot. Thanks, that uh, I'm glad to be here. So, <clears throat> so Matthew, uh, you know, I gave a little intro of your story here, but um, just just walk, walk us through um, what happened. I know there's a lot of stuff in the background with with certain people. Yeah, no, I'll cut. Yeah, but but just ge- generally, tell us um, first. Tell us how you got into this position as the first non-affiliated independent media person resident at the UN press corps. How, how did this happen? Tell us a little bit about your background, and then sure. just explain to us how it all came to a head, uh, generally. Okay, yeah, no, it's true. I was, you know, for what it's worth, the, the, the New York Times, when I got there, said it was, you know, first blogger at the UN. I would say it's, it was a strange headline, because at that time, the UN said that they didn't accredit bloggers, so but it was even more complicated. It was more, you know, the inner city press, uh, which uh, existed before it covered the UN, you know, did, uh, uh, covered the Bronx, New York, uh, covered homesteading, people fixing buildings that were abandoned, covered banks not lending in the Bronx. One day, I went to cover the UN, uh, a meeting about banks and the environment. And, uh, as I listened to them, uh, you know, so I was in on that kind of a pass, just a one day thing. And as I listened to them praising themselves, you know, Citibank and, and Bank of America, you know, I, I asked a question from the audience and they did, they sort of blew it off and then they said, Everyone can go, you know, all the audience can go and have lunch in the cafeteria or the delegates' dining rooms, the big fancy room on the fourth floor of the UN, because they were going to have a press conference and we'd all reconvene three. So I went to the press conference on the inner city press, but they said, no, this is only for UN accredited press. Um, and I said, well, I'm innercitypress.org, let me in. They said, no, it's, oh, .org means you're an NGO. We can't accredit you. So I said, well, wait a second. There's npr.org. There's, it, it, it's not really about the, the, the suffix of the internet address that it turns on. But they said, well, uh, I came back the next day with innercitypress.com, you know, $16 poorer, and there, there, I was it. I was in. I was, I was at that. At first, you know, you, you work in the bullpen and you sort of have a more difficulty coming in, but I became pretty active and, and, answer, and that pretty much asking more questions than, than almost all the other journalists in some plays combined. Uh, I, I became a resident correspondent. They assigned me a desk and I started, you know, at first, I, I think that they liked me. I, I was covering the UN. I, I was, uh, I mean, I was always looking. I, I ran into some, some, some corruption scandals that I covered, but things only got worse through time because they don't like this kind of questioning, it seems. Yeah. So, so, so I'll pause there if you want, you know, that's the, that's how I got in. And, 
Well, I, um, I think it was interesting that you said that, uh, you know, they, they, they rec- recognized you as a, cause you're a dot org as a, a sort of an NGO or whatever, but you're right. Uh, NPR, Voice of America, all these basically government funded media outlets, um, are sort of given special treatment. Um, uh, so they're not, they're not exactly private is what I'm saying. Exactly. And even, I would even say in, in whichever way people think, think about it, that you see all these articles about sort of the, the new model of journalism being, you know, crowdsourced. There's, there's non, nonprofit newsrooms in San Diego. So it seemed like a very arbitrary thing, but to them, it made a big difference going.com. So the, the current address of the of UN coverage is innercitypress.com. And, you know, it's basically turning out, you know, six, sometimes eight stories a day, Sometimes just, you know, following an ongoing, uh, like right now the Secretary General is in Algeria and Western Sahara, also covering Burundi and, and Yemen a lot. Last, yes, I think yesterday we read, ran a, I would say it's a world exclusive. We got a leaked, leaked, uh, email report from the UN's main envoy on Yemen, uh, Ismail Sheikh Ahmed, to the head of political affairs of the UN, Jeffrey Feltman, who used to be the U.S. State Department's Middle East chief. And the email pretty much shows, uh, that what uh, the the envoy told the Security Council last week was false, and that uh, I mean, it's, so it's gotten a lot of gotten, you know in a certain world it's gotten a lot of play among among people that are concerned about the Saudi-led coalition's airstrikes. They've been shooting it around. So this is the kind of thing that I cover. And if you want, I'll, I mean, I can I can fill in the pieces later. But basically, it seems like at a certain point the UN started looking for an excuse to get me out. Um, and I've had various run-ins. At, at one point, they tried to use other journalists to write letters saying that I should be put out. This was a Voice of America, Reuters, AFP. Uh, but in, in fact, somebody in the UN leaked me these letters. I published them and everybody backed off. And I did a FOIA request. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I, I, I can show you how that happened, but it was very, I don't know where it would have gone. I'm like, I never know would they actually have been able to go forward with it. But the moment the thing was published, I, I have an internal, because I did a freedom of information request to the parent company of Voice of America, which is called the Broadcasting Board of Governors, Internally, they ended up. They never apologized to me, but internally, they they acknowledged that for a, a government, a U.S. government entity, you know, supposedly respecting the First Amendment, trying to get a smaller competitor media thrown out of the UN probably wasn't consistent with that. So they stopped, but uh, they didn't really stop, as as I've seen it, because the the the, the it basically the, the, this it, this year everything came to a head. Uh, I mean, the the main thing that happened is there was a Friday. It's now I guess sixteen days ago. I was working as I always do. Uh, I was covering, there was a Security Council meeting coming up on Syria at 3 o'clock. Or something my path didn't work to go through the turnstiles of the Security Council. So the guard, you know, said, I'll put you through, but you need to check this out. Somebody came and spoke to me about you. So then I went to media accreditation and I said, what's happening with my pass? They said, we're going to look into it. We'll get back to you. Right before the Syria meeting, they called me up uh, to the hallway in front of my, the office that I share with another journalist. And they handed me a letter that said, you have to have everything out in two hours by 5 o'clock. Um, and the, the excuse that they used was that I had tried three weeks before that to cover a, a, an event in the UN press briefing room, which is the same room they have the noon briefings in. It's basically, I think it's open to the press. Like anytime the door is open, I believe I have a right to be there. And I went to cover this event, which I can describe if you want. And, and, and I told them, I said, I think I have a right to cover it. And the organizers who were in fact, the other, uh, some other journalists said you have to go. And I said, if security tells me it's closed, I'll leave. But it's not written anywhere. It's, in fact, you shouldn't even be using this room. Like, you have your own little clubhouse if you want to have a secret meeting. But if you do a meeting in the press briefing room, I'm going to cover it, but I don't want to be disruptive. So I went into what's called the interpretation booth, which is a glass-in booth. I was filming through the window. It's totally visible. And I said, I don't want to participate in your event, but I do have a right to cover it. And just as an aside, the reason I want to cover it is that there's a current corruption scandal around the U.N., which, in which uh, basically people are paying bribes to buy U.N. documents. And, and there's, I believe, and have written the story, that one of the vehicles for bribing the U.N. or gaining access to the U.N. was the Journalist Association. The U.N. Correspondents Association took some tens of thousands of dollars from an entity called South-South News, which turns out to be just a shell. As a term, you know, there, there's no readership, no nothing, nothing there, although they have an office in the U.N. And in exchange for that, they, the, 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 the main briber got a photo op with the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, and, and, uh, you know, people can, I think there's also, it ties into some of the other things that you cover, like the same journalist club will like hold press conferences in their clubhouse in the UN for like the Syrian National Coalition or various entities that, that, that some like, but that are not actually, you know, they're not governments. Like, so they really couldn't get a UN press conference 
but they do it in the journalist club, and then they say, we had a UN press conference. So I always cover those things. They don't like it. And they used me trying to cover their meeting on, on January 29th as the excuse to not give me a warning, not ask me why I did it, not say, don't do it again, but to say, you're out. After 10 years, after all this work, this was an unforgivable sin, and you have to leave in, in two hours. Wow. So, so there's not, m- not much difference than if you're working in an investment bank, you know, clear out your, you got an hour to clear out oh. your desk. Basically, totally. I mean, in fact, the, the similarity to it, and this is where I think I think I've seen I know I've seen the movies. I don't know, you know, and I actually do. I cover some financial chicanery too. But I would say I've seen the you know the Wall Street movies where they say you know you have to leave immediately. Here's your box, and they watch you the whole way, right? So you can't like trade or you know steal something. I'm telling you, the day that they threw me out, which was February 19th, they, they met. I, I went up from the security council, and they said, "Here's the letter. You've Got to leave in two hours." I said, I really can't. I have to cover the Syrian meeting. And it's, I mean, you know, I'm a journalist. I'm not going to just stop working. And so for, for that, those two hours and a few hours more, they had a, a minder follow me everywhere. A U.N. security official in a little suit went, followed me down to the Security Council, stood next to me as I asked a question of the Turkish ambassador, followed me upstairs when I went into my office to get my you know, phone wire to recharge my phone. When I stayed inside the office, he sat on a chair in front of it that still remains there, like the watchman chair. So it really was similar to that, but I think what I've tried to say to them is that they, they don't seem to understand. There's something, there's something contrary to, it's not just the First Amendment, which doesn't apply to the UN since it's an international organization, but just the basic ideas of freedom of the press. The entity being covered cannot have a, a, a openly have a, a watchman following around. It's called a minder. And I know for a fact that if a UN official went to visit, you know, I don't know, North Korea or Syria or Eritrea or any number of countries, if somebody followed them around, the UN would be the first one to complain. But the UN has its own minders, and they used it. And to just to, to sort of move the ball forward, ultimately I was writing up the Syria meeting, and I was I, I asked the Turkish ambassador a question, so I was transcribing it. They kept, you know, saying, right, "When are you going to go?" I said, "I'm going to send an email. I don't agree that I'm going to move my whole office, but I'm going to take the most important stuff because I don't trust the UN anymore. Not that I ever trusted much, but I really know that you can do anything now." And the guy said, "Okay, you know, try to get that van, and if not, you." Next thing, I, I started periscoping. I took out my phone. I, I could tell something was happening. One of the guards told me, there's 15 people assigned to this. You better back down because it's, 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 everything is primed to basically screw you. So, you know, I plugged, my phone was so it wouldn't run out of, uh, out of juice. I, I had it plugged in. I propped it up. It was filming the, the, the stakeout and the sort of Guernica replica tapestry on the wall. Suddenly, eight guards showed up, pulled the phone out of the wire, sort of inartfully turned, turned off the periscope stream, grabbed my laptop, ripped my pass off, ripped you around your neck so you can get in and out of the, of the building, ripped my pass off, and basically you know, pushed me like, like, you know, not head over heels, but push, push, push down the escalator to the first floor. I said to them, you know, my, my, my office is upstairs. I have my code upstairs. I have my passport upstairs. Like, you know, it's my office. I used to, until three hours ago, I thought this was my space, so this is where my stuff is. They said, no, 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 we're going to, if you resist at all, we're going to turn it over to the NYPD. All of this has been an audio file that that, that uh, 21st Century has put on its website, and they pushed me right around this traffic circle of the UN where they usually have a fountain, but they didn't because the night was below freezing. And I'm just now in, in their blue kind of you know whatever work, you know work shirt. Pushed me into the street, threw my laptop on the ground, and, and that was it. Wow. So so this is a uh, physical intimidation, uh, you know, physically removed. Actually, I, I have been thrown out of an investment bank, uh, Credit Suisse First Boston, and and I, I did I was I did have minders who pushed me. Yeah, out, yeah. Didn't push me. Yeah, out. yeah. I've seen that. I, I'm not trying to say it's worse. I'm trying to say I was actually the, the irony is I was trying. They were permitting me. They didn't have it together. I think they tried to tell me as, as with as little notice as possible. But I said I had to cover the Syria meeting. So they, I think they realized that it would have been stupid to say you can't cover it. They thought this would be my last UN event. But they basically, they followed me as I did it. So, you know, like, let's say, which I have a lot of sources, some on the phone, some in person, like, basically, they're watching who I'm talking to. This is what I find really, it's like a minder. That, I think that's the purpose of a minder. Like, you know, if, if people go to some countries, they trail them so that they don't get to talk to anyone, basically. Or they know who they were talking to, and then they can go after the people that, that talk to them. So, so let's just preface this for a minute. Like, you know, you're not, you, you, you're not an anti- you know, you're not against the United Nations. I'm sure when you started uh, working in the press corps there, I'm sure that, uh, you know, you've got the UN's best interests at heart. And I think most most investigative journalists, no matter how many scandals they break, not just the UN, but with government, with any government, you're the, the, 
the point of the free press and the point of exposing uh, cover-ups and corruption is not to undermine the, uh, the, the, the structure of that government or the, the place that it holds. It's to make it a better place. It's to make it more transparent, more accountable, right? Is this, let's oh, just totally, get, totally. I, I just want to make it clear. Yeah, I, I, mean, I can, I can, I can, I, yeah, I can explain. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I don't, I don't want to overdo it. I, I have to say that my current view of the UN, not just what they did, you know, 16 days ago, but the fact that I have raised this issue to the highest people in the UN and they know about it. And that the fact that they haven't already reversed it, makes me, you know, not, not question the organization, the current question, its current leadership. But I do, I mean, the point is like, I believe in the principles of the UN. I believe in the principles of like what they call sovereign equality of states, that there needs, that countries, whether big or small, should have at least, you know, we know that it's the law of the jungle out there, but there should be some place where everyone can speak, where if they talk against you, you have a right to respond, you know, that it's probably a good thing. Even though people make fun of the UN and say all they do is talk, it's a good thing that there's a place where everyone can talk, where everyone can go in and, and you know, have their say or whatever. There's also a, definitely a place for peacekeeping. There's a lot of places on, on, on Earth where, you know, I don't think peacekeepers could say, you know, solve Syria, obviously, but there are definitely, like, conflicts. Central African Republic is one. East Timor was one where, where the introduction of some kind of an outside force to enforce a ceasefire or to monitor a ceasefire is a good thing. But this is where it comes in. It's, it, all of that is undermined when the U.N., you know, violates the law and abuses the people they're supposed to protect. And this happens repeatedly. In the case of peacekeeping, one of the stories that I followed and, and, and I'm writing about is, you know, repeated rapes by UN peacekeepers in countries like the Central African Republic. Not even just, not, not, I mean, rapes of children by, in, in some cases, French peacekeepers, in some cases, other, you know, neighboring countries' peacekeepers, and the, and the, the rapists are entirely immune. They're not in the same way that the UN, you know, I mean, it's a much worse problem than I'm talking about. But after I was thrown in the street, I went to the local police precinct and I was told they can't do anything. The UN is immune. They have no jurisdiction over it. In the Central African Republic, if a peacekeeper wearing a blue helmet rapes a four-year-old, the police can't stop it because the peacekeeper has immunity. Diplomatic, not diplomatic immunity, right? Correct. They're, they're, so, so it's a really, and the UN has done virtually nothing to ensure that these people then get prosecuted back at, you know, in their home country. Plus, how could they be? The four-year-old is like, you know, traumatized, not going to travel to the trial. Basically, everything just goes away. In fact, just this past week, I think on Friday, I, I, there was a report that came out by the United Nations in which uh, the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, without even criticizing it, talks about a country imposed a nine-day suspension on one of its peacekeepers for sexual exploitation of a minor. But, you know, I don't think that's probably the, an appropriate penalty. I mean, no, I don't not, know. Nine no, days suspension. Yeah, nine days. That's yeah. correct. And probably, and other, probably you know, with so, pay. Probably with pay. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it's 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 really something. And so, and I'd say nothing. You know, also on peacekeeping, they they the UN. Many many of your your listeners may know of this story, but the UN uh, uh, you know negligently brought cholera to Haiti. You know, they 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 have a peacekeeping mission there. It's sort of. It's sort of like American, you know, intervention on the cheap, basically. It's been there for well before the earthquake. But after the earthquake, they brought in more peacekeepers, including from Nepal. That's a fine country. It's not, I don't blame this on Nepal, but there was cholera in Nepal. Mm. The UN never screened the peacekeepers. They put them in a camp outside of the capital in Haiti, and they gave them, like, probably it was a corruption scandal, too. The, The sanitation system was laughable. They didn't even have pipes. Basically, the peacekeepers' excrement was going into the river, and it was excrement with cholera in it. And turn the clock forward five years, 10,000 people have been killed by this strain of cholera totally traceable to Nepal and to the U.N. And the U.N. has not paid a penny, not a penny to, like, the families who, like, lost their bread earner, thrown out of their house, kids can't go to school, nothing, because they're totally immune. And so these, I cover these, it's like saying, so if you cover that, are you anti-U.N.? Are you saying the U.N. has laudable goals? It would be good if the U.N. could step into places like Haiti and actually you know, protect people, you know, and, and like make sure that like the government can't just push protest, you know, people that are asking for a new vote on the ground. But if you're actually killing people with cholera or raping people, then you can't really do the job. So the, the thing is to try to root these problems out. 
but the UN seems incapable right now of reforming itself. I and, think. and so this falls to me. This falls under the uh, the banner of uh, um, institutional corruption, and you know a, a lot of institutions that you know time and time again uh, keep kicking the can down the road, or don't want to do any internal audit, or don't want to uh, you know crack any internal scandals, and just basically bring in the new blood and clean things up. This happens with governments. This happens with U.S. administrations. It happens with corporations, and it happens with all institutions: educational, medical, everything. And any institution that resists uh, reform or doesn't want to basically deal with its dirty laundry ends up collapsing under the weight of its own corrupt institutional corruption. So I see you as doing them a favor by helping them with their housekeeping. But if they don't want to act, to to react to any of this stuff they can turn it into a pr plus if they deal with corruption but i think what you have with the un and you might uh disagree or agree with me matthew is that you have an ivory tower that it believes that it is the ultimate ivory tower and that it can never admit that it's done anything wrong because then they're afraid that that ivory tower will collapse because they're already no no i think yeah yeah go ahead I think you're, no, I think you're, I mean, I think you're, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, one thing I've seen is that they're absolutely unable to apologize. Like, I look at my case, it's not, it's not that big a deal, but I think if, if, if you're, if your listeners go to the article that you wrote and click the audio clip, like, it's pretty clear that, like, pushing a journalist out into the, into the freezing cold, uh, and throwing the laptop on the ground is probably a mistake, right? No one has apologized for that. But much, in a much bigger one, even look at the Haiti thing. Not only have they not paid anyone, they can't bring themselves to say, we made a mistake. We could do better. Just this week, there was an argument in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals about the case. So I went to the, was, I now have this very restricted pass where I can get into the building through the metal detectors. I can only go to some parts of the building. All my stuff is in my office and I'm really hoping to regain it. In fact, I'm, I'm committed to doing so, but I can't go there. So I'm, but I've managed to go to the new briefing and I asked them, I, and again, about the Haiti argument that had just taken place. And the guy insisted that the UN, you know, it hasn't been proved that they brought it. And it's like, you can just do, you can just Google around. Basically, the UN initially had a panel that tried to say that they hadn't brought it, and even the people on their own panel have all recanted that. It's a, it's a total laughable position, but they can do it. But I think, you know, and this is, you may disagree with me on this. I think I've been there enough that I see there's no accountability of the UN. Here's the main thing. Like, I'm not a, I don't think that the, the U.S. government is perfect in any way or is, it, or is really being reformed, but there is a court system, right? So there's limits, and there's also a two-party system. So, like, Whatever error one party makes, the other side's going to jump all over it. Now, it could just be circus. You know, I heard your earlier segment about Trump and all that. It could just be a circus, but I feel like there's at least some accountability because you have another party looking at you. Trying to let, you know, they're going to leap on, on, on Hillary's emails or, or, you know, even if Trump was set up about the KKK, whatever it is. In the UN, there's not a, there really isn't a two-party system. I mean, they're, 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 countries are just trying to get what they can out of it. They don't even care really if money is being wasted. They just, well, the, U- the current U.S. administration likes the U.N. a lot, you know, speaks very positively of it. And maybe it's good. You know, maybe they do that to, to, uh, to distinguish themselves from the Bush administration, which, which said other things about the U.N., but there's nobody overseeing it. Like, I can't go to court. I can't sue the U.N. for what they did, nor can the people in Haiti. They're trying, but they're found to have, you know, immunity is there. In fact, the U.S. government is backing up the U.N. against the Haitians, saying as the host country they're required to defend them in court. The U.N. doesn't even go to court. The U.N. says they don't. Banking hid from court papers. I know the guys who were bringing the case, they tried to serve in papers, and he dropped them like a hot potato, like he's some kind of mafia boss. Mm. So the problem, that's really the problem. And then one topic that, that I think is related to, the way, to, to what, you, what you cover, you'd think like, okay, the one, the one accountability mechanism would be the press, right? The press is there. The UN has you know, a whole floor of small cubicle offices assigned to the press. There's a daily press briefing. So this is going to be the accountability mechanism, and it's not working. It hasn't worked, and and in fact, when somebody actually tries to use these mechanisms of the noon briefing and questions and articles to hold the UN to account, not only does the UN push back, but so does the the, the most powerful among the media that they have there in ways that I'm not even sure that the. I mean, maybe I'm being naive. I, at least I didn't think that the, the the bosses of these UN correspondents, like, do they stand behind? Uh, 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 you know, these guys, like, I'll, I'll be asking a question about corruption, and, and the correspondent from Reuters will literally cut me off right in the briefing room. <laughs> like, 
I don't know what, what I know that Reuters covers financial scandal. So like, why aren't you covering the UN financial scandal? But I think they view, there's a lot of last thing I'll sentence, they view the UN as a positive institution too, or they view it as just a, a place to get quotes that banking owners can deeply concerned about Aleppo. And so they don't want to rock the boat. And so they cut off anyone that does. Well, there, there, there is a party line at the UN, and I think you, you can probably enlighten us a little bit, but really the party line is you have the Security Council, you have the, and the big players on the Security Council, and mainly the United States and, uh, mm-hmm. France and Britain form a little bit of a block there along with maybe some of the other P3, EU countries. And then those who are subservient to them, that effect, effectively forms what's the, the unofficial party line. Uh, so if any corruption touches any of the big luminaries, then it's pr- pretty much off limits, I would imagine, right? No, I think, I mean, the perfect example of that is, and not to go back to the, these rape cases, but the first round of exposed rapes in the Central African Republic were by French troops. And they, it's, a, it's, it's interesting how France uses the UN. Um, they, they, France has now controlled the, the top position in UN peacekeeping four times in a row. It goes all the way back to Kofi Annan when he first got the job. And most or many of these peacekeeping missions are not only in Africa, but are in Francophone Africa, former French colonies. So basically, France uses the peacekeeping to, I hate to say it, to, to, to keep control over its former colonies, whether it be <laughs> Côte d'Ivoire, Ivory wow. Coast, Mali. No, it's true. There's, there's oh. a, I'll give you the perfect, the, the simplest case to look at is the case of Laurent Gbagbo, the former president of Ivory Coast, who's now sitting in a jail cell in The Hague. And maybe he deserves it. You know, he, some 3,000 people were killed during the electoral violence. You know, the other side was guilty, too, but somehow they're fine. Well, the guy used to work at the IMF. He's the current president. He's not going to The Hague. But the, here's the real killer, is that France had been wanting to overthrow Bagbo for years. Because he sort of, you know, unlike previous presidents of the Ivory Coast, he, for his own populist reasons, I'm, I'm, I'm not at all saying that, like, is a great leader, but he took a different stance as to France. And France became committed to getting him out. But they wanted to do it with, the, with, the, with the, the aura, the veneer of international law, right? They can no longer just fly in with paratroopers and, like, kidnap them. So what did they do? Ultimately, the pe- they, he was captured and, and taken out, dragged out in his undershirt and sent to the Hague by UN peacekeeping. And all the briefings were by this the then head of UN peacekeeping was a French guy, and it was all... And this same thing is in the Central African Republic, another former French colony. Like, this... this this is a country that it, it, I, I feel bad. They don't even really have, it's not a, even a real name, right? It's like Central African Republic. It'd be like calling Kansas, you know, like Middle American State. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing. And this guy, he used to have an emperor called Bokasa. France paid for his whole coronation. The guy was a cannibal. This is not that long ago. This is two decades ago. This is, this is one of the most shameful uh, 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 colonial experiences in all of Africa because they have diamond and gold, but the, France left nothing behind, no roads, no, no, no railroads, nothing, no infrastructure. So now, you know, now, now that there's a, 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 a problem there, France wants to go as part of the peacekeeping group, but it doesn't want to even be under, under the UN's yoke. So you have a UN peacekeeping mission made up of African troops, and then parallel to that, much better resourced, you know, with good communications and, you know, all the finest wines, is a French peacekeeping course called Sangaris. But these guys couldn't even just stay in their base drinking wine. They went out and traded cigarettes and chocolate for sex with children. And the UN knew about it. This is what this is the scandal is. The UN learned about it, did nothing. Because, as you said, they don't want to offend the French. France is on the Security Council. It's a big scandal. They, they tried to cover it up. One guy went forward with it, a guy called Andrews Compass. He actually went public. And they tried to fire him. In fact, they did fire him, but he got, because he's a UN staff member, there is a little internal justice system. He's got, he got his job back, although he's, he's a very disgruntled individual for understandable reasons. But, you know, so I think you, see, you can see the idea. Like, it really, it's, it's exactly as you said it, in the sense that, that, that the system rallied around to protect a permanent, you know, a P3, U.S., U.K., France, totally. And I, to make it a more permanent, not just about rapes in Africa, I would say the same thing is true of Yemen. This is a, I mean, it's, it's a conflict that's brutal and bloody. You don't hear anywhere near about it as much as Syria. And in part, it's because the U.S. and the U.K. are affirmatively supporting a vicious airstrike campaign that's obliterated large parts of the country, that kills civilians every single night, that's involved, according even to, to some U.N. reports, cluster bombs. But nobody wants to talk about it because it's, it's, it's one, I mean, you know, the, they're always saying, like, the Obama administration doesn't like to get involved in wars. It's like, no, the Obama administration is gassing up 
the Saudi planes that have been bombing Sadat and Sana'a for months. Yeah, and arguably, there's some some is possible that some U.S. pilots have flown sorties, or at least we have U.S. ground crew, we have radar engineers, we have all targeting tech, all U.S. staff. Totally. Because yeah, when, when Saudi, when, yeah, when Saudi buys F-15s or buys aircraft from the United States, they don't just buy the the hardware. People don't understand. They also buy the technical team yeah. that comes with it. Just like the Iron Dome in Israel is 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 manned and run by U.S. military personnel because they bought it no, from the it, U.S. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and the U.S. is also still, do, I mean, they're openly doing drone strikes in Yemen because there there has been an Al Qaeda in, in, in the Arabian Peninsula presence there even prior to the to the uh, Saleh stepping down, this guy Hadi coming in. So there is, yeah, absolutely. But I think that was one thing. It was one thing, you know, that's sort of like you know the drone war. But this is a hot. This is a. It's an absolutely outrageous. War in the sense that that there are airstrikes every. I mean, I know people now in, in Sanaa and Sada, but uh, I, I get emails every day saying like, "Look at this! This building was here today. Now it's gone tomorrow." The, the Security Council held a meeting on Yemen and didn't condemn the airstrikes. The, the, the airstrikes went on much amplified the following night. You know, so it's like the the the, the this coalition of Gulf countries that are that are that are trying to reinstate the the dubious uh, fl- fleeing leader uh, Abdul Mansur Hadi. They brought in mercenaries. I mean, you can look at this. It sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's not. They brought in guys from Colombia. They also brought in the Sudanese army, well-known for its uh, John Dewey tactics in Darfur. They brought them in. So you have the ironic position where the U.S. is actively supporting a coalition that includes a country whose leader is indicted by the ICC. Well, beyond and then no, Obama, when he was... Anyway, wait, <laughs> sorry. No, but quick, quickly, uh, Matthew. So beyond this, in, in Saudi Arabia who is basically carrying out an undeclared war of aggression against its neighbor, Yemen, is what, occupying a key seat on the U.N. Human Rights Council? Oh, yeah, there, there is, yeah, absolutely. To, I saw, yeah, there, there, no, I mean, and then, but then, you know, I'm going to, this, and, and, and you may disagree with this one, but I think when you think that through, I, I, I always, that's kind of, the U.N. only gets in the news as a kind of corrupt organization when it's something like that, like Saudi Arabia's on the Human Rights Council. The reality is, is like, I don't know where you draw the line. Like the same, there's a number of people that said like Syria shouldn't have a post, or so and so. I mean, I don't know exactly where you draw the line. I'm, I'm, you know, and, and there may be people that are actually probably I probably could work with and don't like me because I say this, but I think the UN is is bound to and should have these kind of contradictions. Like who, you know, you can have a committee. You can't have you can't have killers be the majority of the committee. But if 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 a good twenty percent of UN member states are killers, you need to have a killer on the Human Rights Council. I mean, otherwise, it's just going to be the same guys. And, and I'm not sure that they're any better. I mean, are you, are you cleaner because you gas up the plane? I yeah. think what, what should disqualify Saudi Arabia is the treatment of women and stuff like that. But in terms of, they're the ones dropping the bombs. But the, UN, the U.S. is the one giving them the bombs. So then they, the U.S. shouldn't be on the Human Rights Council. But then yeah. you get into the scene. I'm just saying that as, as an aside. But what I, here's, here's where the, these two stories come together. And I want, I want to, if nothing else, say this. So here's the nitty-gritty at the U.N., right? So they're... There, there's this whole, much of the, the, the coverage of, Ye- of Yemen at the UN is by Gulf side countries. There's Al Arabiya, right, which is based in Dubai, but is basically a Saudi channel. You have some, you have even the U.S. channel. There's a, there's a kind of a Al Hura, which is a, basically a part of Voice of America, but it has an Arabic name. So when, so when, 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 when the Security Council meets about Yemen, the majority of the questions are like, when are you going to finish with the Houthis, you know? Why are the Houthis making such trouble? Which is like, Again, I know reasonable minds can disagree, but if you look at the if you look at the the death count, even the UN's Human Rights Office said that two thirds of the casualties in the last period of time are from Saudi airstrikes, more than half. But we had a press conference on Friday where the Saudi ambassador said that's all false, everything is fine. And here's the the, the sort of factoid I wanted to to get to me it exemplifies all of it. Next week, Tuesday of this coming week, a delegation of, of they're called Yemeni government officials, but none of them live in Yemen because they've all left and they're living in Riyadh. They're coming to New York, I guess, probably to lobby Security Council members to, you know, tighten the screws on the Houthis, and they're going to help hold a press conference. So I would say, this is great. I'm going to go to the press conference. I'm not going to be, you know, abusive, but I'm going to ask them some questions. No, they're not doing their press conference in the U.N. They're doing it at the Yemeni mission, and they've only invited the members of the U.N. Correspondents Association. So I, I, somebody leaked me the invitation to it. I thought I could probably RSVP and try to go, but then these guys would go crazy because I quit the UN. When I first got there, I stupidly, you know, you join them. You're encouraged to join them. I quit them. I think it's a corrupt organization. But 
at this point, I'm saying it's, 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 they're going to have all the trappings of saying we've spoken to the U.N. press corps, but they've only spoken to the part of it that agrees with them. Wow. You, we watch the articles that are going to... I'm thinking, because this is the way I, I do things, I'm thinking of setting up outside the Yemeni mission and periscoping all the people going in and out. But I guarantee you, these guys will go nuts. These, the journalists have become, you know, they, they're basically doing the bidding of the U.N., trying to say, you know, keep them out. It's become a battle of wills. I think... The woman who made the decision to throw me out, on paper at least, who signed the letter is called Christina Galach. She's the head of the UN Department of Public Information. She's Spain's highest official in the UN system. Now, I never knew her. She never talked to me once in the year that she had the job, which in the context of the UN is a little strange because I'm a pretty active journalist. But she wrote this letter to throw me out without once speaking to me, asking me why I was in the briefing room, what I was trying to accomplish. Since then, she's under some pressure. Both, uh, to me, most, most, most excitingly, from outside the UN, there was a protest in, in northern Sri Lanka, which is a conflict I covered in 2009. Totally, like, I woke up one morning and I saw they'd done a protest. They protested the UN building and they said this Galatis decision has to be turned around. So now, what do they do? So, through, the, you know, some anonymous trolling accounts, they try to say somehow I paid people in Sri Lanka to protest for me. It's like, I want to tell you, I don't have the money for that. <laughs> too, like, I, I didn't even know they were doing it. Well, it I saw, I saw the news up. clip, um, Matthew, I yeah. saw this news clip. I think it was a Sri Lankan television. These were Tamils outside the UN, um, compound in, uh, Jaffna, right? Yes, in North, yes it's, it's a long time. It's, 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 the, it's the capital of northern Sri Lanka. It's and so the, they're protesting, and I saw they've got, say, reinstate inner-city press. Now, I'm mm-hmm. thinking to myself, the reason they're out there protesting at the UN about you in New York is because you're probably the only journalist who has been trying to uh, raise the important issues regarding uh, genocide-type related issues with Tamils being targeted in Sri Lanka, and no one else is giving them that sort of uh, attention. No, totally. Am I wrong? That's yeah. why they're out there. No, not at all. I think you're right. I mean, I can't speak for them, but that is, and it's even worse than that. It's not that the other journalists just didn't care. That happens on a lot of stories, you know, but in this one, again, it's, it's going to sound, this is another example of how it works. Not only was nobody else covering, like I started asking, I got big documents showing that the UN knew how many people were being killed. I was pursuing it. How does the government of Sri Lanka at that time, the Rajapaksa government doing most of the killing, how did they try to fight back in the UN system? Well, they had they created a movie. They had a film called Lies Agreed To, which was criticizing anyone that said there was a genocide going on. It was a, basically a war crimes denial film. So it's a government-backed, it was backed by the, uh, the government? By the government. Uh, it was filmed by the government. It was actually it's a rebuttal of a very good film that was shown on, on Channel 4 in the UK by a guy called Colin McRae. It was called Bloodbath on the Beach, where he, got, he basically was able to get people's cell phone footage of like incredible mortar, mortar attacks on hospitals that were nothing but blue tents, just vicious stuff. And so he created this film, the creative snake mostly in the UK, maybe all over the world. He goes around and screens it. He's a very nice guy. So the government had a rebuttal film. Here's, here's how the UN works. Colin McRae's bloodbath on the beach couldn't be shown in the UN. Because why? Sri Lanka doesn't want it. You know, you can't show anything you want in there. But guess what did get shown inside the UN building? The government's rebuttal the film, which was never shown in the UN. Course, so so the, the government, it was a government propaganda film that's basically yeah, apologetic to, uh, and trying to oh, cover up. Oh, it was saying everything's crimes. a lie. It was saying that, yeah, it was saying that there's no, no war crimes took place. And it was screened inside the UN, sponsored by the UN Correspondents Association. This is when, I, this was the last act where I was still on their board. And this was the real killer. This is what got me in trouble to the beginning, is that, so I was on the board, but no one even did an email around to say, should we sponsor, should we give this screening inside the UN? And the person who decided unilaterally to do the screening is the current head of, of the UN Correspondents Association, John Paolo Pioli. He's an Italian journalist. I don't want to be critical of his work, although I rarely see it, but he's a, he's a, he's a guy that owns at least four apartments in Manhattan and a big house on the Hamptons. And he rented one of his apartments to Sri Lanka's ambassador, Politha Kahona. And then he granted the guys, later, he granted the guys' request to screen this war crimes denial film. So I wrote a story. And the reason I wrote the story is because in Sri Lanka, the government media said, we've won at the UN. Our film is inside. The other film is outside. So I said, well, you didn't win because, or, or readers should know, this was not a UN screening. It was an UNCA screening inside the UN. And number two, readers have a right to know that the person who decided to grant the screening has had a financial relationship with Sri Lanka's ambassador. And they want ape wire, you know? They, this guy, Pioli, I can say directly, he told me, 
take, you, take that article off the Internet or I'll get you thrown out of the U.N. And I said, that's not how it works, John Polipioli. If you want to write a letter to the editor, I'll run it. It can be longer than the article, but the article's not coming down because it's true. And they got other journalists, even from like, you know, Reuters, Voice of America, they say, oh, this is outrageous. You should never have written that article. Journalists don't attack other journalists. I said, I don't, I wasn't looking for this. But you become part of the story when you sponsor a government war crimes denial film, you know, in, in an irregular way, and you have a financial conflict. You well, should have recruited yeah, yourself. Con- never. Yeah, conflict of interest. When you got conflict of interest, when you have collusion, then that then the press, if the media is involved in that, any sort of financial uh, relationship there, then they're part of the story. You're absolutely right. They become. That was what I said. That, that was the beginning of the end, where they said like you shouldn't cover other. It's like I'm not covering other journalists. I don't care what you have for lunch. I don't care about your your you know Amherst. I don't care about any of that. But when you become part of the scam, and and, and you know this was to me a very extreme example of it. So people remember that. Like, that's. That's what ultimately led to this first round of trying to throw me out. But I got a leak, so it stopped. But I believe it kept, even as like, you know, it kept churning behind the scenes. And this is the group that, that I guess either filed the complaint or was the sort of, sort of, you know, uh, helpful idiot to say to the UN, he disrupted our meeting. And I'm going to say I had every right to cover the meeting. If the meeting, if they held a meeting in the UN press brief, briefing room, I'm allowed to cover it. Didn't say it was closed. I said from the beginning, if somebody tell, if the security tells me to leave, I'll leave. And until then, I'm not leaving because I don't. It's not a closed meeting. It's not listed as closed. And this is the same group. You know, this the Sri Lanka one was the most pungent to me. That since then, you know, took money from from this Macau-based businessman called Englap Sang, who's now under house arrest, indicted for for bribery at the UN, took his money and got him a, a, a photo op with Ban Ki Moon. So I think that this goes. This is what I'm saying. This is how the UN works. The journalists, the Secretary General. And nobody, again, this, maybe people didn't know. They didn't know he would be indicted. Maybe this was a way of doing business during this Ban Ki-moon era that for a little bit of money you could have a little bit of access. Maybe it's not even a crime, but it's a legitimate story. And I feel like as soon as I started covering, I've had a lot of problems, whether it's Sri Lanka or I, you know, I covered different, you know, Burundi, Rwanda, the Yemen thing. The moment I started covering this corruption angle, not only as to Anka, but as to Ban Ki-moon himself, all I know is the next thing I knew I was thrown in the street. Yeah, out, out on the all, street. <laughs> out on the street, physically. And all I thought when this happened, it would be pretty easy to turn around because I felt like, at a minimum, the UN, uh, you know, big, big honchos are going to see she should have talked to me. You have to at least have a little due process. You know, at least, even if it was a game, give me my chance to be heard and then screw me. You know, or, what she should have done, even if she thought I did something wrong, just write a letter to the file. This doesn't justify it. But So I thought it would be turned around. Well, I went the, the Monday after I was thrown in the street, there was another meeting about Syria. I'm a journalist. I have to cover it. I arranged, I asked a, a colleague journalist to sign me in as a guest, just as like a tourist. Said he would do it. Other people said no, by the way. Other, other major media said, well, we'd like to, but we might lose our office if we do it. This is the, this is the atmosphere at the UN. I mean, I have those emails. I won't name them, but big organizations that would never lose their office said they can't do it. But one guy said he would do it. But I was told, not, not only I, he couldn't sign me in as a guest, I was told to get out of the pass office, that I'm banned from all UN premises. And let's remember, this is all for me seeking to cover a meeting in the UN press briefing room. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it doesn't, you know, again, I'm not trying, I'm sorry, to, it may sound like I'm trying to play the victim. I'm just trying to emphasize, like, this is unheard of. You know, it's, un, it's an unheard of penalty for something that's just a disagreement about the rights of the press to be in a certain place, where I didn't even say, I'm not leaving. I said, if I'm told to leave, I'll leave. But I'm not going to leave because the, the, the guy who was ordering me out that I was supposed to obey is the guy, John Paul the same guy who screened the Sri Lankan war crimes denial. Like, I have no respect for him. I don't have to. He doesn't own the room. Well, I but think, guys, I, yeah, I think it's yeah. pretty, it's pretty obvious that, you know, you've, ex, you've exposed something and rather than the UN, uh, you know, maintaining its own institutional objectivity and dealing with their corruption, they've instead turned their, uh, gun sights on you and decide to get rid of you. And that will be the easiest way to deal with this problem rather than to look at themselves and to, you know, reform and fix and get rid of other bad apples that they've got in their, in their basket. Basically, this is what's well, happening. That, 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 and then I think, you know, there's going to be a new secretary general. That's one of the, the topics I'm trying to cover between now and like, it might be as early as June that you have to choose the next one. So as a, you know, believe it or not, as a UN supporter, it's imperative they get a better one. I hate to say it. It's, it's imperative that they get someone that's that's not that's not as beholden to the P3, has a little more pizzazz, you know. And it's like mm-hmm. 
But it's not going to happen because, just so you know, I mean, it, it may happen. I don't know. I, one of the reasons that I want, even on this restricted pass, I'm trying to be in there is not that, you know, I, I, I'm not, I don't kid myself. I can make a huge difference. But there should be some objective viewing of it. There should be, like, I'll, I'll, I'm periscoping stuff. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get, let people see, you know, I think here's the way I explain it to people. There's a veto over the next Secretary General. Basically, anyone that's ever taken a position against the U.K., France, U.S., France, Russia, or China, He's not going to be Secretary General because they, even one vote knocks the guy out right. or a woman. It should be, you know, there's a lot of, you know, which, which it, it definitely should be a woman, but it should be, a, it should be not just competent. It should be someone that can, maybe doesn't have a track record of standing up to the P5, but when, when they take it over the job, they, they can do it. That's like the main job that they have, I think, because since in the Security Council, there's a veto system, right? So there's never, they can't condemn Israel for Palestine. They can't condemn you know, a variety. People complain that they can't condemn, you know, Syria, whatever, that, that, or Ukraine. That because there's a veto system, the only thing the U.N. system could do when one of the P5 acts wrong is to have the Secretary General say, this is wrong, you know, at least be a moral voice, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. And the current one hasn't done that at all. So I don't, I don't know where I'm going with that except to say that that, that it's, I think, you know, right now that, that this guy had, had 10 years, Ban Ki-moon, and it's come down to this. It's come down to throwing out a journalist onto the street because he dared cover an objective story that, that you know, you took a photo op with the guy who's now indicted, and you did it through the journalists. And you, you did nothing or very little when there was a genocide in Sri Lanka. I actually went. Now, I, now I'm banned from these trips. But before I, I got into this position, in 2009, I, I accompanied and covered Ban Ki-moon's trip to Sri Lanka. It was right after the government had declared victory. And I called the victory tour. We were flown in a military helicopter up to northern Sri Lanka, where the, 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 the mostly camels, in fact, all camels, that had sort of been pinned down and trapped in a corner and shelled for months, were finally extricated and put into a concentration camp. And had, surrounded by barbed wire called Manic Farms. Ban Ki-moon and, our, and, and the compliant press corps, we were taken into the camp, and they had these camel children lined up singing Ban Ki-moon's name, surrounded by armed soldiers. I was there. This happened. They were saying Ban Ki-moon. And Ban Ki-moon, rather than say, this is horrendous, this is disgusting, <laughs> he took off his blue UN baseball hat, doffed it, you know, like Lou Gehrig style, you know, mm. and thought it was the greatest thing ever. Yeah. So this is, this is it's unbelievable. So yeah. I described that. And, and, and you're just in terms of like, yeah, I mean, I could, I could tell you more, but I'll, I'll wind it down. I got well, into it. Yeah, I said something on the record, and I quoted him, and he said, I'll never talk to you again. It's like, it was on the record. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the U.N. produces a lot of reports every year, uh, and to a great expense, at various corruption indexes and U.N.-funded studies on corruption here, there, and everywhere. And when you have a situation where that institution itself has corruption issues inside, then you've got a huge problem because they're meant to be the honest broker, the arbitrary, uh, the moral voice, as you said. They, if that credibility is challenged at all because of issues that they're not dealing with inside, you've got a major problem, okay? Major problem. And I think you've exposed some of that. And I think, Matthew, where's the, where is AFP? Where's Reuters? Where's the Voice of America? They should be jumping all over some of these things and then using their platforms to, as a megaphone, to air these issues. But that's not how it works, is it? It's not how you scratch backs, right? Exactly. And I think it's actually very, what I came to realize, because I always wonder, I said, like, why, why is there nobody else asking these questions in the bridge? Not just, and I don't don't even mean corruption questions, just questions about, like, you know, smaller conflicts or just, you know, smaller wars and stuff like that. I realized one of the problems is, is that these big, these global media empires, Reuters, AFP, to them, the UN is just, it's just a, it's a small piece of a bigger machine. And the purpose of their office there at the UN, and they do, they all have permanent people there. AFP has two people, one in French, one in English. The purpose of that is just to get small quotes for larger stories. Many of these people don't actually even write, you don't see their byline much. You see at the end, with reporting by or con- contribution by, and their whole, at least you could do, a, a monkey could do this job. Banking puts out a press release and he's deeply concerned about, uh, the, the, the government's uh, blockade of Aleppo, you know? So, of course, you know, they want to run that. And that's it. And so the person just turns the quote over to a roundup story written from the Middle East about various people's response to what's happening. So the, the, U, the UN keeps these wire services 
close at hand by giving them privileged access. You know, like, we'll give you the quote in advance, or Ban Ki-moon will have lunch with the UN Correspondents Association board. There'll never be a transcript, but they can use the quotes. And so, yeah, these guys don't, it's a very, it's a very comfortable relationship. Like, you give us positive coverage. And of course, I mean, the big media organizations are predisposed to go for the Ban Ki-moon is concerned line, you know? So it doesn't, there is a bigger kind of ideological picture, but just practically speaking. And so then, I mean, it's, it's, uh, here's, here's a technology example. At, at the Security Council, ambassadors go in. The meetings are at 10 and at 3. Ambassadors, you know, walk down the small staircase and they go into the meeting. When it's the number one ambassador called the permanent representative, if they stop on the stairs and talk, it's on the record. It's not confidential unless they say otherwise, right? All the reporters are there, have their tape recorders. Most of the French guy reads from notes, the English guy holds forth, and then they, they run upstairs to their office and they write a story. Many of the stories make it look like this was kind of an exclusive quote, like Francis Francois de Lac, you know, told AFP. But it's, it's on the record to, to a group of journalists. What I've started doing is to periscope the whole thing, is to, is to turn on my phone and live stream the fake-out. So huh. that people, if they're talking wherever they are, can see it. It's on the record. There's no, if it was off the record, I wouldn't take, I wouldn't brought live stream it. But to me, if it's on the record, there's no, what's the difference between audio and visual? Right. Well, I'll tell you. The Reuters correspondent tried to push my arm down. They tried to complain to the UN that I'm breaking the rule. The only thing that saved me in terms of doing that is that the missions themselves, the country's diplomats, have started doing their own periscoping. So how can you stop the journalists if the mission is doing it? If tourists can go to the Security Council and, and, and shoot video out, out in front of it, why can't we? And plus... Some of the ambassadors, whether they like me or not, start you know, retweeting it and, 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 and liking it and, and, and using it because, you know, it's, maybe it's a vanity thing. They like to see themselves. There they are, you know. And I, I'm, not a, I'm not a wild man. Like, one UN security official said to me, there's some concern about your periscoping. I said, well, where's the concern coming from? If it's from the journalists, I have no respect for it. If it's from a mission, let's say a security council member that doesn't want to be shown, Talk to me because I'm sure I can arrange. It doesn't. It's no skin off my nose if one of the elected ten members, you know, is, is shy. It doesn't want to be seen even walking into the security council. It doesn't. I have a right to do it, but I'm not going to do everything I have a right to do because I have a larger picture here, which is that, for example, whether it's on Yemen, that people have a right to see. I mean, I, I had actually a periscope scoop on Yemen where the Yemen the Yemen uh, ambassador representing Abdul Mansour Hadi came to the stakeout. It was about ten days ago. Right? It was. And, and he was talking, and all the journalists were nodding, and he was saying how bad the Houthis are, and they're going to, you know, they're just about to retake Sanaa. He kind of knows me, but he didn't answer my question. I, I turned on my phone, I go over, I said, you know, this, this ship that the Saudi coalition, you know, stopped from landing in Hodeidah with food, why did that happen? And he said it's because it was full of Iranian uh, military equipment. And he said, I had it on Periscope. I went out to my office, this is before I was, so it's more than it's maybe three weeks ago. I ran into my office immediately, like, filmed my phone showing the Periscope, put it on YouTube. It went all over the place because this was false. It was totally false. As it's turned out, this was, they called it humanitarian IT equipment. It's basically walkie-talkies for aid workers. But I felt like if I hadn't been able to, you know, audio doesn't equal video. Right. And, and, and it was really, a, it was, and I pursued this. I asked the Saudi ambassador on Friday, why did he say it? Well, you have to ask the young Well, now they're going behind closed doors with Ungon to their mission. But it, to me, beyond just this back and forth of technology, why didn't the UN complain? Why didn't the UN say, they wouldn't if it was in Syria, I guarantee you, if the Syrian government stopped the UN you know, from delivering food and said it's because you have you know, Turkish mortars, the UN would scream. Maybe rightfully so, right? Yeah, but it especially, especially if it was false. Exactly, if it was false. The UN didn't say anything. It had to be drawn, it had to be, it was like pulling teeth to get them to admit that the boat had even been diverted, much less why it was diverted. And here's the reason, here's the conflict of interest in that one. Saudi Arabia has been allowed to be the main, almost only, but we'll just say main, funder of the UN's humanitarian appeal for Yemen. So during the night, they destroy everything. Mm-hmm. And in the day, you know, it's, it's through the King Salman Humanitarian Foundation. You can look it up. It's, it's disgusting because I, I've asked the UN's you know, aid arm, like, don't you want, aren't you concerned about your own credibility? Don't you feel it's a conflict to be taking the money from the person who's gotten the bombs all night and then shutting up when they, when they, when they block your convoy? And they claim, though, there's no, they have big ring, ring fence. That's the word the guy used. The, the, two, the two divisions of the UN are totally separate. There's no, it's, like it's, a, it's a joke. 
It's a total sure. joke, you know, and it's, nobody, nobody reports on it. So, so what I see is, um, you know, this, some of this reminds me of, uh, how Washington DC works in terms of the press corps. You know, if you, if you report nice, you get to fly on Air Force One. If you don't right. report nice, you, you basically stay in the Motel Six. But what, sure. what, what we have in America, essentially, and in, in most places, and, and that it seems to me in the UN too, with a press, you know, instead of exposing the, uh, the facade of the institution and, and all the sort of the hollow, uh, policies and all the hypocrisy, they become just part of the show. In other words, they're just kind of facilitating the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the show as it were. So they, 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 they cover apparent action or announcements of programs or the enactment of a new, uh, a study or a new initiative rather than actually finding out if any of these things actually get executed, if any of these things, uh, actually get implemented, you know, if there's any actual mm-hmm. effect on the ground. Or let alone scandals and cover-ups. Forget about those. But so yeah. they're just no, functionaries. No, the, the media are just functionaries of the institution. It's like a Pentagon like, correspondent, yeah. like Barbara yeah. Starr on CNN. Yeah. She's actually totally. in the Pentagon. She's actually yeah. working for the Pentagon for all intents and purposes. Yeah. They'll say things like, we, what are we going to do? This happens at the UN, too. The, 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 so what the, the CBS correspondent will literally say in the briefings, what are we going to do about it? And it's like, what we are you talking about? Like, I believe in the UN, but I'm not the UN. Like, if you want to be we, go with us or work for, you know, Oxfam or whatever. But, like, you're supposed to be covering them. But here's the one, and not to, not to hype up my situation, but the, here's the difference that I see. Everything you said is true. But if, if, if uh, Josh Ernest tried to take uh, an unfriendly journalist from the press room and push him out onto Pennsylvania Avenue, the guy could go to court, Right. The UN, there's no protection. They can openly say, we don't like, but that's what they're saying now, actually. I've heard from, like, I won't source this, I've heard that they're using the way that I've, quote, fought back since being thrown out as the excuse for keeping me out of my office. They don't like my tweets. They don't like, you know, they don't like that protest in Sri Lanka. It's not even my fault, but it's, it's, there's no First Amendment. There's no, they don't even have to pretend that, that it's not about the content, it's about something else. They can say, I don't like your article. Screw you, you know? But here's the positive angle that I would say, and maybe it's a, is on all of these things, whether it's Yemen or Burundi or Sri Lanka, I see, and I'm sure you've seen it too, the media isn't everything. You know what I mean? That you end up, the impacted people or diaspora communities or people that are just concerned about a topic, suddenly you have a community of information. You know, and you have people like, it's not like if the New York Times refuses to cover the story, it's not a story. Maybe it's not as big a story, but it's still a story because people didn't, you know, I don't know. I just, I think it, to me, that gives me some hope. It's not so, you know, I mean, it's a very, maybe it's a very, it's a platitude. Like, you know, don't complain about the media, be the media. But there is, I think the tech, technology is getting, and I'm, I'm sure they'll find a way to fight against it. But in, 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 in some of these issues, there's an ability to share information in real time and to like, it's not, uh, you know, you don't have to just beat your head against the wall. Like, I'll give you an example. I, 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 I often I'll write a scoop, and these guys will just steal the scoop. I'm, they'll just publish it and no credit, anything. It still does make me angry, but it doesn't really, to me, it's not like they're not the validators of anything anymore. You know, I just, I'll, I'll just note, like, you stole it, you know, I'll just move on. Yeah. Well, this, this is it. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll go out. You know, not on the, not even on a limb. I'll just say full on. I know that this, the, the, the emergence of, of digital uh, technology, information gathering, sharing, dissemination, like, uh, like basic, uh, you know, blogging, uh, Periscope. <clears throat> we are absolute, it is absolutely transforming the, uh, the paradigm. They have no, there's no more uh, centralized control. Of information, they're trying like hell to achieve it, but they're really just fighting against a losing battle of 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 just the it's just technology and people's thirst and uh, people's desire to want to know more and to get different views and angles. And now the genie's out of the bottle; it is not going back in. And if you're not going to adjust to it, you're not going to adjust uh, reasonably to this. You're going to end up becoming irrelevant. And this is what's going to happen with so many institutions, um, not just in media, but and not just government, but all sorts of sub institutions as well. But I think, and this is, I sort of, this might seem too too packed to you, but I really, I actually see. I mean, there's all the specifics of you know Sri Lanka and corruption, of Banky Moon. But I, I see, in a, in, a, in a way, what's happened to me in the last couple of weeks. I see this part of that, sort of in a 
that although I think people, in, in, even in most of the government, uh, you know, actual national governments understand you have to try to move into this new era. This is, a, this is, the UN is like a place that time forgot. They honestly believe they can turn back the clock, that like they can, if they just, you know, in my case, I'll say throw me out or ban certain kinds of technology. It can be the way that it was, a, a friendly press corps, everything, you know, everything nicely known and controlled. I mean, it's, the funny thing is they accredited me, okay? They accredited, you could, 2007, the New York Times wrote, first blogger at the UN, blah, blah, blah. I've run into, in the last two couple of weeks, saying, like, the guy's just a blogger. You shouldn't get back in. We don't accredit bloggers. It's like, bloggers, even that, even that concept is done. You know, or like, it's like, but they, because the UN has no accountability, they, can, they, they believe, like, everything will be fine as long as we just draw the line here, kick this guy out, send a message to others. This is one of the reasons I'm fighting this is, I mean, I want my office back because I, I edit videos there. Like if I ask a question at noon, I can go upstairs, uh, download the video over high speed wire, have it on YouTube in an hour. Since I've been thrown out of my office, it takes me eight hours. Okay. It takes more than two hours to download the noon briefing and then another two hours to upload the clip. So it's, it's not working for me, but yeah. it's beyond that. I can't do interviews, et cetera, et cetera. But Beyond that, I think it's, it's, they've sent a message, basically, to other journalists there, don't ask any hard questions, or you too will be in the street. And especially to people that might want to come and cover the UN, don't bother. This is like a truth-free, this is a, I don't want to say truth-free, I'm sure there's some truth there, but this is, this is, it's not for that. And, and even if you get in, even if you try to build something up here, we can pull the rug out from you anytime we want. And, and, that, and I don't think that's appropriate. So I, I'm, well, I'm, you know, putting your article, there's a petition, I'm definitely like, I'm, I'm sort of, I don't know what's going to happen next because I feel like they, they, they let me back in, but they're hoping that I'll, I'll ask the wrong question. Something will happen, but they'll be able to throw me out, you know, totally forever. But at the same time, you can't, it's like playing a basketball game five fouls. You can't, you got to play. You can't like, they're, they're trying to make it like, just be careful. You know, be careful. Like be on the back foot. That's what somebody said to me. It's like, that's not, for that, I'm not even going to be there, but I'm going to, I don't, I think I haven't, whether, whether there's a first amendment on the UN or not, I have the right to ask the question and then just keep asking them. And, with my eye, I'm getting right back to my, my office and, and my resident correspondent status and just to continue to, to... And then we need more people there. That's, one, that's why I end with this group. More people should come to the UN and cover it. It, it, it's, it has more of an impact than you might think. It's, it's sometimes a powerless organization, but many bad malefactors in the world use it to, to justify, promote, and provide a fig leaf for what they're doing. And so it's an important place to cover and and that's why it's important that they have to take people, whatever their views and whatever their questions, uh, and allow them in. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think the UN needs you. They need people like you and more people like you uh, inside in the press corps. Because let me tell you right now, and the theme of this show is a league of nations. And the reason we chose this theme this week and our next guest, Rick, Rick Sterling, is going to drop another huge bombshell um, with a UN related report. But the reason I'm saying this, Matthew, and to my listeners as well, everyone out there at Sunday Wire, is that the, if, if the UN doesn't clean up its act, it might end up like the League of Nations. And this is a lot of people are saying this is, we're, we're in a sort of epoch in history, a cycle again, very similar to that, uh, pre-World War II or, or World War One uh, for that matter. Uh, where the League of Nations was completely irrelevant, it was completely uh, uh, a nothing uh, organization uh, riddled with institutional corruption and bias, and it ended up basically disintegrating. And the UN is basically following some of the similar patterns in the context of history as the League of Nations, and we can't afford that to happen for a number of reasons. Uh, or it may be that's just the natural evolution of things. I'm not sure, but it was very ugly um, the last time we had this sort of an international crisis. Yeah. So that's my. No, I think you. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. You're, you're dead on. I don't want to. I don't want to cut into to Rick Sterling's time, but I think you're you're 100 percent right. It's, it's the only thing we haven't touched on here, and maybe you will, is this idea of Security Council reform. It's it's absurd that the five countries, four of whom won World War II, and one of whom was brought along for the heck of it, France, are given the power to block anything just as, as one voice. And so you have countries like, you know, wherever you think of their foreign policy, Turkey or, on the other hand, you know, Brazil or Japan, you have a variety of countries, India, that say, you know, they want that veto right too, or no one should have the veto. And what I honestly think, so there's, I don't, you know, the problem is that any reform of the Security Council requires, it can be vetoed itself. So what country is going to give up this ridiculous power they were given voluntarily? But the only solution that I see to that is to have, Major countries like that, let's take Turkey off the table, given what it's you know, recently done to the press there, et cetera. Let's talk about maybe Brazil and India. 
is to have countries like this say, we're, walk, we're taking our ball and going away. We're not going to keep propping up the legitimacy of an organization that totally disrespects a billion people, right? It's like India has a major population, and they have, you know, they have to just sit and, and, and listen to what, you know, what France tells them. It doesn't make sense. So if those countries, I believe, were to say, we're going to set up a to- an alternative organization, and then it was, might look unrealistic at first, and I'd say, well, you only have, you know, if you, if you take countries with half the world's population and say, we're setting up shops somewhere else, I think then the five have to negotiate. But if they don't do it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a doomed, it's a doomed endeavor. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Well, there's an article up on 21st Century Wire that's got a, a fairly uh, succinct summary of uh, Matthew Lee's story. Uh, I encourage people to go read that, watch the videos, uh, click on the links as well. So Inner City Press, Matthew Lee. There's also a petition. There's a petition at the bottom at uh, change.org. I don't normally uh, ask people to go yeah. look at, at those, but in this case, yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I know. It's a little strange, but yeah, but, but, I'm not sure what the... But I, Take a look at the comments. That's what I was surprised. Yeah. By. The comments, what I like is that they came from all over the place. You got people, you know, definitely some, some hard charging cynics, but like people from Burundi are saying, like, how are we going to get news? You yeah. know, so I, I would have thought that the UN would look at that and say, even in their own very limited kind of noblesse of least, semi, you know, paternalistic colonial mentality, like, there has to be a place for, for media that's covering issues other than just Syria. So but I want to go. I want to get you back on the show in the future okay. to talk about a lot of other issues, Matthew, not just right. not just your case, but but some of the individual stories which you've been covering. I also want to talk about freedom of the press and I want to talk about fourth estate issues. What is the state of the of the media of the press in society today? These are really important issues. I think you can add a lot of uh, insight Anytime. to any, I hope uh, to do it from my office, actually. Yeah, <laughs> well, we, we gain my thought, but I think, but you're right. Even, even whatever happens, I, I agree. I think it's a great, I, I'm, I'm always willing to do it. Okay, well, we really appreciate your work, and uh, you're out there fighting really for the people, um, as far as I can see, and Inner City Press represents really independent journalism, grassroots, you're a self-starter, and uh, people you can also go and support uh, Matthew and his work there at innercitypress.com. There's links at 21st Century Wire for that as well. Matthew, thank you so much for your time today. Okay, no, thank you. Thanks a lot. I know we went over time, but I, I really appreciate it.